This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Hi, I'm Dave Hillis, producer, mixer, engineer, and you're listening to Whatever, Never Mind. I would like to welcome to the program uh, Dave Hillis. There's there's zero chance I mispronounced the name, correct? Yeah, it's a pretty easy one. Right on. Uh, now, uh, should I call you an engineer, a producer, a musician? How what kind of title would you like? Um, I'm those three things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all of the above. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm all all those three things. All right. Well, give us a little background on you. I know you uh, reading your bio on your page. You started out as a musician, a musician in the band Mace, a thrash metal band. Actually, is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. Um, yeah, we, you know, guitar player. You know, kind of um, in my teen years, there, you know, fell in love with like that, you know, heavy metal stuff, and and then British New Wave of heavy metal, and then got. You know, influenced by a lot of uh punk rock stuff as well and that kind mm-hmm. of was at the time started we were one of the first bands there was like kind of blending those two styles together which kind of came known as thrash or was popular down in the san francisco bay area 
where we started uh, taking trips to and playing down there. So we were around that same time as uh, um, Metallica and Death Angel and Testament and that whole Bay or Exodus. And and um, so, yeah, we kind of did that thing. So it morphed into your basic, you know, heavy metal kid into that more specified kind of thrash scene there. Now you said you were and going we put out. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was saying we, put, we were able to, we got on a couple compilations at first. We, we got on Metal Massacre 5, which was kind of, you know, a breaking ground for a lot of those types of bands on Metal Blade Records. And um, and then on a, a Northwest compilation called Northwest Metal Fest. Uh, and that got the ball rolling. And then we were able to do two full-length records on um, some independent labels and here in the states and in and in Europe, so and we're in all the fanzines, and so that was my first taste of really uh, kind of you know doing it professionally. But uh, throughout that time, though, you know, I was interested in recording, and um, I started writing and doing demos. Pretty god, before I, I wasn't, I didn't like and wasn't good at learning songs, so I started <laughs> writing right away. I just didn't have the patience to learn stuff. So I started writing. So I was going, I was demoing things like right away, uh, you know, 14, 15 years old, I was saving money and getting into these little studios and nice. worked at a record store. And that's where my money went, you know? No, so where, where, I'm sorry. Where, where were you based out of around this time? You said you went to San Francisco for that scene where you we were, were Seattle. My family okay. was, uh, we're from Brooklyn, New York originally, but, uh, my father, Got work in uh, the Seattle area, so we were like a suburb of Seattle. You toured with any of these bands from that time? Uh, any of the big four? Yeah, we, you know, we did. Um, it was, you know, so DIY. Uh, so it was basically you would set up tours by being, you know, you'd be in these fanzines and playlists, and you would make friends and write to before email, of course, to uh, other bands, and you would set up tours that way, and that's really how we did it. But yeah. And then we, then we kind of had a man, you know, different managers and things. And for while, so things got, we got bigger opportunities. Like we got to, uh, do a number of shows with Slayer and then Raven and Anthrax and, and, um, things like that. So we started like, you know, getting those op- opening spots that were pretty cool. Um, mostly on the West coast and Southwest kind of. Were you part of like, uh, are personally involved in that whole tape trading scene that was kind of. Um, oh, absolutely! Very that, key to that scene. How, yes, that was the that was that was what it was all about. Really, was the tape trading. That's how you got known and got another playlist, as it were, not Spotify <laughs> playlist, but playlist that these fanzines and the different writers from the fanzines would have every month in the beginning of the the uh, fanzine. There'd be each guy's playlist, and that's kind of what spread word about you, and then. There'd be tape trading and demo tapes, live tapes, whatever. Was Slayer the only one of the big four you you, you actually did shows with? Um, let's see. Well, who's the big four? It's Metallica, uh, Metallica I- Megadeth, and Anthrax. So, uh, yeah. And Anthrax. So Anthrax we played with, Slayer we played with. Megadeth and um, the Metallica guys would be at our shows. We never did end up playing with any of those. Okay. But we hung with them. They were at our shows and you know that kind of thing, uh, but a lot of punk rock bands too, like DRI, Corrosion Conformity, Circle Jerks. Hmm, um, hmm. We did a lot. That was right when things were crossing over. Uh, uh, we were friends with this band called The Accused, who were kind of doing it coming from the other side, 
being a punk band turning kind of metal tendencies to it and us going that way. And we kind of influenced each other. And um, that, you know, that was kind of a legendary time scene, at least that, that was going on. How does that segue into you becoming kind of an engineer producer, that kind of deal? Well, so like I said, I was early on doing demos and things like that. As I was getting, you know, older, a little more savvy at it and realizing that the production was just horrible on our records. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I wanted... No band was, has ever know, felt was, that way before, by the way. Just you. <laughs> and I was, I was pretty uh, determined, you know, to be successful and music business. I was, you know, all I thought about that was, you know, that was the only plan. Um, I wanted to uh, have more control of my recording situation and things like that. And, and so, and with having, you know, four tracks and stuff at home, I felt like I was getting better and new things. And, um, so after that band had broken up, I was doing jumping around many different styles, you know, uh, I was never one of the guys to stick to one thing. I was like, from, you know, I was jumping around from different styles, everything from, you know, industrial music and goth music to, you know, Brit pop to what, whatever. I was just trying everything. I just kind of liked music and I, I was trying to find my thing. And so as were a lot of bands in Seattle at that time were kind of fusing things together and playing musical chairs and bands and, um, and, um, uh, just kind of doing that thing. I was recording, you know, once again, just always in the studio and, and, um, how I actually made the real jump was, uh, uh, down, I, I actually ran into, uh, well, I went and had a, a band that I had. I, I realized the studio that was uh, the most, like, you know, um, world class, as it were, was London Bridge Studios in Seattle. And mm. I wanted to get in there. So I uh, did a demo there. And um, during that time, uh, so I did, I did a demo there. And, uh, Rick Prosher, who I ended up working for later on, was there, but he was giving a guy named Don Gilmore a shot because Don was kind of um, entering under him. And Don went on to do like Lincoln Park and all kinds of things. But this was like his first alone gig. And it was happened to be with me doing this this demo of some guys I put together, I was trying to put a band together. And um, after he'd done that, I ran into Rick at a club, famous club in seattle called the bogue and he had just said oh hey weren't you in the studio i saw you in there and I said yeah how'd it go and i said great and um and uh we ended up talking hanging out and he invited me back to the studio for a party he said hey can, you know those girls over there uh if you bring them can go back <laughs> to the studio so i was like i'm in because i just wanted to get to the studio because i was all about that and um from there, he he mentioned that he was looking for, you know, a new assistant and things like that. And I just got his number and harassed him like until I could get in there and uh, and an interview with him. And that's how that was my big jump. And then like my first day there was like while he was mixing Temple of Dogs. Oh, I wow. now I've already I'd already been in there now many times, and I knew many bands that were already in there so i was familiar with the place and i knew it would be a good score to get a gig working there 
So, you know, because Bone had already done Apple there. Um, Alice had already recorded there. And these are all friends of mine from, you know, we all were, you know, shared the same rehearsal rooms, ran around the same parties, you know, all, you know, uh, had played in each other, different bands or different versions of bands or, you know, sold gear to each other or something. You know what I mean? We were all pretty incestual scene. So, you know, I was calculating enough to know that that was probably a good move for me. You know, I get in on as someone like, you know, I mean, I, when I was younger, I was in bands and, and, and we did that kind of stuff. The scene here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, um, it was not as communal as Seattle always seemed. And, he, and and if you really break down the stories of like that L.A. Sunset Strip thing, there really wasn't a lot of like helping each other out or just, you know, being friends and actually like wanting success for someone other than yourself. But Seattle seemed a little different in that way. Do we, is that a fair generalization from someone who wasn't it's- there? Close. I'd say um, there was a communal thing, although it could be very clicky, too. Um, okay. And there was definitely a difference between suburbs and city. <laughs> so, you know, like... the. And which you were know, you again? Were you a kid from the burbs? I was, see, I was so city oriented that okay. <laughs> I was from the burbs, but I never was there. I spent, I knew that the smart thing to do was be in the city. So I was, I kind of played both sides as, as it I were. I gotcha. Um, uh, but, uh, I, you know, like I said, I had early ambition. So I was pretty, I was pretty, uh, sly about all that kind of stuff. But, but that being said, that like the guys like in, um, uh, there's just kind of more, you know, your uh, scene with like with the Pearl Gem guys coming from Green River and, and you know, and Mark Arm and all that. That was kind of, you know, a lot of the city. But then, you know, there's different things, too, like Nirvana. I mean, Kurt came out of Aberdeen from wherever. Yeah. So as things started rolling there, you know, anybody could do whatever. Even Alice and Chains were people from the suburbs, but yet they kind of got in that group. But like I say, there was uh, there was just little clicks at times. But okay, um, I was able to kind of keep my foot in in most of them. So, and, and being back- an opportunist that I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, back to your kind of like studio thing. So your education really came hands on, just kind of getting your foot in the door, and that's how you learned. Basically, but it was yeah. I mean, like I had to be. I, I, like I said, I'd spent a lot of time, quite a lot of time to see for my age at that point. Um, so, you know, I, I, I kind of learned, um, basic, you know, stuff as it were, but you know, working on like a, a neat console, obviously I'd never had a chance in that mm-hmm. type of thing. So when I, when I got there, this, so the real first project that, you know, he was doing Temple of Dog and I was kind of learning and he was giving me time to learn. Um, was a band called Love on Ice that was out of Portland and they had signed to Interscope, which was a new label at the time. And, um, you know, it was a big, big deal, actually, uh, money-wise and stuff. And I was pretty much just thrown in the fire. Like, there was no manual or anything. Um, and he didn't really, like, 
Rick wouldn't really teach me necessarily. <laughs> and especially now I look back on it, I'm thinking, wow, you know, he could have told me something. Hey, what a dick. He really, <laughs> yeah, well, that could be You know bad. what I mean. I'm uh, just joking. <laughs> but he just threw me into it, and, you know, he knew that I had certain, you know, he knew I, I knew a lot, uh, you know, I knew guitars, I knew guitar pedals, I knew, you know, he knew some strengths, and he wasn't necessarily a rock guy, per se, so... Um, like moving along into like Pearl Jam that came like there, he knew how to utilize me as well too. Like, um, me knowing the guys in the band, um, and like working with Mike and stuff, helping him get tar sounds and speak their language, Hmm. um, was a good thing because Rick, that's not really the side. That's not really how Rick worked. Um, and so, you know, the, and, uh, you know, being there running the tape machine while doing solos or, or punching in parts was a little bit less intimidating probably with me doing it than Rick, you know, at times. And um, so that kind of worked out good. And that's kind of what became our uh, way. But yet, but as far as like, you know, technique and, and, and actually gear, it was kind of just, here's how it, here's how it goes and you better keep up and watch and, um, and, and do. And he, and so, you know, that was, that was kind of cool. I was like hands on right from the start. Um, so that, you know, uh, what I really learned from him a lot was his side of, uh, producing in the sense of, um, you know, he's real stickler for like pre-production and arrangements and arranging harmonies and writing the harmonies. Um, you know, how tight, you know, the, the, the actual takes were being particular about things, you know, the details and, um, things like that was where that's where a lot of schooling came in from him that I still, you know, you know, it's my toolbox now. Um, and you know what, on a side tangent, just, um, did London bridge become bad animals or is that, uh, do I have that wrong? Yeah, that's wrong. So, Bad Animals was a studio called Steve Lawson's um, back in the early days. And it changed names and hands a couple times. Okay. Bad Animals came for when that was downtown Seattle, right on Fifth Avenue. That kind of had its moment, moments where it was doing a lot of commercial post work and then, but a lot of famous rock records. And then the, the Anna and Nancy Wilson from Heart bought it and then the name Bad Animals right. came in. And, then it was solved again. So it kind of had some different carnations, incarnations. Is London Bridge still London Bridge or is it still there working? It is. It's London Bridge. And it was uh, two of the guys who started working there right, right after me um, ended up uh, conjuring me. Uh, ended up buying it. They were able to uh, buy it off the brothers, um, Rick and Raj. Nice. So it kind of stayed in the family. So, yeah. So they keep it as London Bridge and they have like uh, – kind of become a bit of a museum in a sense um landmark now from all the grunge stuff as it were uh, no you said rick's last name uh earlier parasher okay i was just saying yeah. parasher prior to this but uh okay well you worked with him for some time right yeah um i did so we it's kind of like that end of 89 um 90 whatever that was uh, up until like 2000 was really the end of it. I 
there was a wow. moment there where I actually got a, uh, a, but on and off there was, I ended up getting a record deal myself with Island records. And, um, so that Rick produced, so hmm. we actually did that together as well. And then I kind of, you know, going on my own and there would be different projects here and there that I come back to him with, um, but uh, I was trying to break away for there for a while. Well, let's get into the record at hand today, Pearl Jam 10, which sure. you were the engineer working with Rick on. Um, do you have uh, any insight as to how they ended up choosing Rick? Was it basically uh, a proximity thing? Or was there some like a, a little more like we want him kind of deal? Um, I think, well, a little bit of both. And it, it kind of made sense. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to say. So you know, Rick was obviously known and, be, and been doing work there, and they'd come in and done different things with him, and realized well. And it was so, it was also something they had enough experience doing records um, that they, I think, um, Stone and Jeff really wanted to have a part of it. So it is, as it says, produced by um, Pearl Jam and Rick Parashas. So I yeah. think they wanted to. They knew they needed somebody to help them, but they wanted to have some kind of more input and control um, at that point. And um, so the thing was that Rick was, you know, a pretty exceptional engineer. And um, I know, like, you know, with working with Dave Jordan and other other people, because uh, of coming into London Bridge, everybody was, you know, pretty impressed with Rick as a as in his own engineering skills. And I think it just made sense. Like, wow, we could do this great studio with the classic Neve and Studer and Rick. And, you know, it made sense. And we ended up doing two um, demos, like months long, <laughs> long time for a demo these days, um, <laughs> with the guys too. So like the, you know, Stone had had done writing demos already um, in the whole free even Pearl Jam at all. Sure. Um, and then, and then Jeff kind of got, I think help, help, or I don't know if he played on those or not. Jeff got in a band with the war, a band called war babies. that was on Columbia for mm. a minute there. And Mike Goldstone, who was the A and R from, uh, Epic, who was signing them, you know, had, it also worked with the mother love bone too. And I think he, he just believed in stone and Jeff. He knew that they, he just had, he just believed in them. So he was kind of financing the demos for Stone. And when it looked like, okay, this is going to be a band, he gave more demo money for them to come into London Bridge. And that's when, you know, Eddie was uh, basically his real, real tryout. Let, so, g- g- just back up a little bit there. Uh, he, Jeff was financing the, the demos at the time? No, no. Uh, uh, Goldstone, the a and Oh, right, right. Okay, I'm sorry. Michael I, Goldstone. I'm glad I, I cleared and, that up. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah you know, giving them demo money to write and, and whatnot. So I think the deal was like, I don't even know if they were officially signed until, I mean, we were already kind of in the studio, mm-hmm. but um, I don't really know all the details from that. Right. But, uh, but anyway, we did those and, and, you know, um, so yeah, it just, it made sense. I think, I think it just, that was just, uh, you know, instead of going off, I think with some, um, big producers the label would want them to do or whatever they wanted to be somewhere more comfortable and, and, um, have, you know, their control over it. 
You mentioned that you were brought in kind of while they were, they were um, mixing Temple of the Dog. Did you know these guys well prior to working on this record? Um, yeah, well, I didn't know Chris. I knew, you know, I, I knew Stone the best, probably, Mike. I'm, uh, I'm talking Pearl Jam, or, uh, yeah, Pearl Jam, basically. Once 10 starts, did you know those guys at all? Yeah, yeah, I knew all, all of them, pretty much. Um, Dave Cruz, I didn't really, I didn't know, actually, at all, the drummer. Um, although, it's funny, is that now I talk to him all the time. <laughs> um, so, but, yeah, I... Yeah, like, you know, Mike, I knew from rehearsal rooms and God, I think we should, you know, loan the amps to each other, you know, stuff like that. Stone, I definitely knew. We were like, saw, you know, kind of friends around town all the time. Um, and Jeff and just from the different bands. And so, yeah. No. So, it was, yeah, it was kind of weird when they were in there doing it. I was like, kind of like, you know. Hey, guys. <laughs> I, yeah, and I was kind of bummed I wasn't doing my own record. I was like, gosh, yeah. these guys are doing a record. <laughs> so, it yeah. is kind of amazing coming off of Mother Love Bone that they just kind of like landed in. First of all, they were able to kind of plow through that and forge ahead, and then also just basically end up with another record deal. I mean, that's that's pretty, that's something to be said there, man. Somebody believed it in was, them. Yeah, definitely. People believed in them, and you know, it helped too. They had, you know, they were lucky. They had good, they had management then too. I mean, that was a big, um, I think, a big deal in the whole that whole group of people and scene happening is that you know they had Susan and Kelly Curtis and people like that around that were forming management that had some. Well, with Kelly Curtis, he had some success off of and knowledge from experience from a uh, heart in those, those right. days. And, and so at least there was some kind of uh, liaison into the major label world for them that might not have been as easy if that wasn't true, you know? Of course. Yeah. Um, is it and true? to protect them too, to guide them, you know? Yeah. And that, that's the other thing too, is like have someone that actually be- wants the best for you, I guess is, is that's not always the case in, in this industry, but Right. Um, is it true? Yeah, that... I was very familiar with all of them and knew the story and the whole bit, and uh, um, I knew Andy as well. And yeah, I was going to so, ask you. So, how well did you know Andy? You know, fairly well. Good enough to you know say, "Hey, Andy, <laughs> see him being at shows together." We went to uh, went to a Wasp show together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> what what year ish? Oh God, I don't know. Um. What year would that have been? I, when was lost? I I don't know. Well, their their debut came out and see you. That's funny. That I'm just gonna rattle this off. Their debut came out in '84. Um, so then they uh, I don't know, like '84 to like '89. They they, that, was, they that were kind of bigger at that point, so it might have been maybe five. They were probably age six, maybe. I don't I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I remember well, the, it well though. Last Command. What was their third record called? Uh, fucking uh, Inside the Electric Circus, and then it was Headless Children. I don't know if any of that helps. I'm just saying. Those are the yeah, four. I don't know. I can't remember. I remember his walk, and I remember him. Here's the best. Here's our, why this is imprinted in my mind. He stole, <laughs> um, grabbed a bunch of uh, T-shirts from the merchandise. People that weren't looking got a whole whole armful. And we were out there, and he, he was, back at that time, there was a 
so the radio station was KISW, it was a big rock station in Seattle, and mm-hmm. they would get those guest uh, station ID things. And one of them was Kevin DeBro that was playing all the time from Quiet Riot. And so Andy was imitating Kevin DeBro, voice that you hear all the time on this ad that was going on, selling Wasp t-shirts. <laughs> and that his stick was walking around, this is Kevin DeBro. I can't do a Kevin DeBro imitation. But, that wasn't bad. Uh, blah, 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 and Wasp and that It was just freaking hilarious since we were there. And um, that's, that's what's imprinted in my mind from doing that. <laughs> uh, and that he, everything he did, he did big, you know. Yeah. Uh, have you seen the? Not not to get too deep into it because we're not talking about it. But have you seen that documentary on him? I think it's called Malfunction or something like that. Yeah, I saw that uh, a while back. It's been a while, but um, I saw that. I think when they first kind of did it and then mm-hmm. they played it in a uh, small theater thing in up in Capitol Hill, Seattle. But yeah. You know, let, let me ask you something just on that alone, because there there is a version of that on YouTube now where it's clear that whoever, like someone took the, the, the I don't know if it's the people who made it or somebody else, but they, they reposted it. And every time um, they talk to uh, anybody from Pearl Jam, they put some kind of disparaging kind of thing under there. What, what is, I just don't know the beef. Is Was there a problem between the the Wood family and the the surviving guys? Because it sounds like the, the, the father was willing to, like, you guys should pursue your dreams. Do you know anything about that at all? Not really. I don't. Um, I remember there was a big, there was a big, fu- uh, not funeral, but a, uh, uh, what would you call it? Memorial, memorabilia thing? Memorial? Or memorial? Yeah. At, 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 at um, where was it? Moore Theater or somewhere like that? Yep. And, um, and, uh, that had some kind, it had a very, uh, uh, ominous kind of dark vibe to it. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It was just a weird time, you know? Um, but I don't know any of the, like, internal okay. things about that. No. Fair enough. Let's get into 10. One of the things I came across was that the, the, the track Alive is actually, as far as the bass recording track, that's that's the, the original demo. Is that accurate? I, From what I know or remember, I, I you know, once it gets out of, once it starts going to labels, I, who knows what, hmm. you know, it's hard to know what was what. Um, I know they, I thought there was a different version that was from, the video no yeah the I video that, i thought was a live recording they they actually right. kept the uh, record as far as i know is the one we recorded there okay. um yeah i don't think it was a, i don't think i don't remember that well there's all sorts of articles on this record so you don't know how legit some of the stuff the story was they just couldn't recapture the vibe of that track and so they went with kind of the bass tracks of of the demo that they did with 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 yourself and Rick. Um, but you would think I would know because I was the guy editing. Well, exactly, all man. The reels. Um, I don't remember I don't remember not be. I don't think so. I don't think. You know, I can't quote one hundred percent, but I don't believe that's true. All right, um, uh, I'll take your word we, for it. Because when we because and the reason why I'm saying too is because when we. Um, we're tracking, um, and and like no other record I've ever worked on since. Uh, we the whole the whole thing that made that record special and different is that, and you probably couldn't do it today just because of budgets and things. Is that and just the advent of Pro Tools, but 
is that they were very, it, it was very much, um, they wanted to get things live in a, in a take as a band. Mm-hmm. So we spent so much time and the, um, the amount of tape that was used, most people's budget today, you know, <laughs> for a record wouldn't even meet their tape budget. Um, was immense. Like we had so much tape that there was a window from the control room out to the lot to the uh, lounge, and you couldn't see through it because it was just stacked out high full of two inch tapes. And I remember just take the amount of time we spent going through takes of the different reels for the different songs we wanted. Just the listening back of all those. You can record a record, you know what I mean? Because there's so much material to go back over and pick, which was the best takes and notes that we'd have. Um, so most of it was we we spent so much time that I I don't think we would have went back to a demo on that. But, okay, so it could be wrong. But then even the uh, and and they were meticulous. I mean, we could punch in places. We could, you know, these days you just edit everything together in Pro Tools, right. but. There might have been, you know, some songs where we said, well, you know, God, that that outro or that um, bridge in this song was, or this take was just great. We might have edited that part and put it into another whole reel, but that would have been about it. They really wanted to get a whole live take. And nobody would have really known, you know, but um, that was like a big deal for them. Were there any songs in particular that were extremely kind of tedious as far as hard to get get what they wanted? Well, yeah, there's kind of a a story already out there about um, uh, Evenflow. We did. So Evenflow, we're, you know, so we're doing these day after day of just all day tracking and um, extremely hard working band. I mean, there was no partying, no downtime. It was just show up and work record work and um so because i was going so long there'd be times where rick would go um you know say all right just keep recording and you know so i'd be there you know he'd leave we'd go into the <laughs> night because <laughs> we'd go into the night and he's not going to sit there and listen to the same song you know it's just so my job was to record it and you know put it stars or notes next to ones I thought were pretty good. And then in the morning we'd go through and maybe comp something or listen to, uh, whatever. So that if there was a good take, you know, we'd move on and start overdubs or whatever. And even flow was just going all day, all day, all day, all night into the night. And it's getting late now. I don't remember what was that? Was there a problem or was it just like, uh, not a problem. They just didn't think they had that magic take. It was all about getting that magic okay. take. Just the perfect feel, perfect groove, just that was what it was all about. And I mean, you can tell the record has that, you know, everything has such a great feel and groove to it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know, that one was just eluding them and we just, they just kept trying it. And um, like I said, I told this, this is kind of, a, so this is a pretty funny one on me. So we're like, I don't know, it's got to be two in the morning or something. And uh, I'm sitting there and it's just, you know, we get done end of the song. And I'd be like, you know, all right, is that it? And they're like, oh, no, say it again, say it again. So all of a sudden this takes going and I 
I'm sitting in the control room by myself, <laughs> feet up or whatever, doesn't even go into it, and I hear this, <laughs> and that's the, the sound of <laughs> sound of the tape running off the reels. That so, was a great impersonation of that, by the way. Thank you. I've heard it enough times, yeah. and um, I, uh, you know, there's. I thought there was enough tape on the reel. And there wasn't. So I'm thinking, well, no big, because I go first. I'm like, oh, my God. Shit. And um, they're going to do it again anyway, right? I mean, it's been all day. That couldn't be the one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go over there, and, you know, the song ends, and I hear them from the control room going, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm feeling a real the reel back on and panicking going, it can't be, it just can't be. And I come in, Hey man, that was good. Can we hear that back? And I go, yeah, just give me a minute. Um, let me, let me get your rough next phone. Just call you in a second. So I quickly spliced a, uh, ending from, a another reel that was sitting next to me, hoping that <laughs> they wouldn't notice. And, um, and that's what I did. So then we, they came and played it back. And if you know anything about editing tape, you'll hear it when it goes past the heads on the tape machine. It'll go, mm -hmm. and you'll hear it. So I just made sure I had it cranked, and I stood over in front of the tape machine so nobody <laughs> could see an edit splice go by, and uh, nobody noticed. And, uh, and it was funny because that I read in another interview, or I did an interview with Mix Magazine, and then apparently that author uh, had read a interview that Mike McCready was doing, who and he had talked about how that song was there, the one they spent all day on. It was like they wanted to kill each other. So it kind of documented that, the, <laughs> that whole day. Okay. So, but, but yeah, that was the, um, so yeah, um, that's the original question. Being that this was his first kind of like, I know he was on Temple of Dog for a little bit there for the hunger strike thing, but this is really Eddie Vedder's real first big time experience in a studio and and singing you know in a recording studio is terribly different i don't have to tell you than than singing live was was he a quick study was there a lot of coaching what was he like to work with basically on his first you know real big time record well that's it's really good good question really interesting um story actually so he uh it wasn't magic right away. Uh, okay. It it took a bit. Um, I know he was, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but it was a big deal at the time in Seattle for him to be taking, in a way, Andy Wood's place. Cause right. In Seattle, Andy was like a legend. And so it was kind of a big, big footsteps to walk into. And, and they didn't, they were kind of reinventing themselves too, as well. Um, the band and, and Eddie was new and not part, you know, so there was a lot of that going on. I know that that's why they were really kind of, um, help having him hang out with Chris and become friends with Chris to get mm -hmm. confidence. There's a lot of that going on through Chris, uh, not in the studio, but I know outside of the studio, uh, that was a big part of things. Um, so no, it took a it took some time, and I always think about it as like he wasn't really Eddie Vedder that we know yet. <laughs> like the Eddie Vedder I met was, you know, he was a lot different. He was, you know, he like the first day I 
I saw him that we I opened the studio door for him. He, he, he showed up first was this, I'm waiting outside kind of early morning and this low rider, yellow, bright yellow tinted window, like Chevy loves pickup comes roaring into the, into the parking lot, like crazy speed. I'm like, what the hell? And he gets out and stuff, and he's a totally nice guy. But the point is, you don't see tinted window, yellow low-riding Chevy loves in wet, rainy, cloudy. I yacht. forgot that that car, that vehicle existed until just now. I know what it looks yeah. like. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of like, whoa. <laughs> you know, that's not a Seattle dude. And um, anyway, but, you know, he, he was kind of discovering and 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 um and uh this character to be born in a way Mm -hmm. and it wasn't really until so there was some i remember in particular was a moment when the band and rick were in the control room and having kind of a discussion and meeting where i'm not really involved in it but i'm there hearing it while i'm doing whatever i was doing and um they uh you know, it was like there was some concern whether Eddie could do this or pull it together. I didn't notice anything in particular that was bad going on or anything, but I remember the discussion. And um, um, so what it ended up happening is we 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 uh, had a lot of basic tracks done and stuff when we let, we showed Eddie how to, we, we, put you keep three or four tracks open and show him on the remote to tape machine on how to arm and record himself mm. and switch to another tape to another tape and um we'd lock him in the studio so we i would like at, at night we he so he went to this um this local video tape you know movie rental place and he'd rent all these like crazy documentaries and weird movies. Um, I remember William, you know, these William Burroughs movie or interview movies and things like that were a big one for him. And he was playing those, um, and, and maybe have wine or something. Not really that much. And he would just like, he was just trying and writing lyrics and singing. And, um, in the control room with the mic on a, on a stand sitting in the control room, arming the tracks and I would like get them all said, okay, you're after we were done doing our things and say, all right, I'm leaving and I'm going to lock you in. And so I'd lock <laughs> him up and, um, she would work all night and kind of, and over that period of time, he kind of developed the Eddie Vedder that we know, like through the lyrics and uh-huh. his stylings and you know, his vocal stylings and cadences and things. And that's really where it kind of seemed to become Eddie Vedder all of a sudden. Um, and, and then, and then I, then it was like where we were getting good takes. Rick would listen, comp them in the morning, like meaning putting some different versions together and then they'd either punch through it or he would try to recreate them, um, as a whole. And, uh, then we, then we really started getting on a roll. So he did actually need just a little bit of time to get used to, Putting on the headphones and singing versus, you know, screaming well, into yeah, a microphone he, at, with, with stage monitors. And you got you to think of it this way, too. They weren't like, 
a band that had a chance to form and write a bunch yeah, of songs in the rehearsal rooms and play the clubs and stuff. And like over three years, all right, we're ready to do a record. It wasn't like that. They were like becoming and developing this new band and sound and style and, and group energy and all that together pretty much in the studio. I mean, for outside of the rehearsal room that they had gotten and when Eddie would come up, but it wasn't like they were like in right. a band together for a long time and had this growth period to become Pearl Jam. It was kind of happening in real time. Man, when you say it like that, this is even more amazing how how big this record ended up becoming. But uh, uh, that 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 I hadn't even thought about that that because I yeah, was always, always focused lyrics, on coming off yeah. the Mother Love Bone deal, you know. Right, and you know, putting the lyrics together, I think, and then as the lyrics come together, that puts imagery in your brain, and that imagery kind of flows up to the other guy. You know, it was all like unfolding, like while they were doing it so yeah. in a lot of ways that's why there wasn't really a necessary like image or anything came from that band because they it was just kind of happening hmm. and they were so all just about the music and the writing that um i think that's another reason why it's uh so authentic you know in many ways and yellow Ledbetter was recorded during these ses- sessions correct yeah do you understand a single word he says in that song Oh man, I remember. <laughs> I remember. I wish I, you know, I think back now. Like, I used to have all the lyrics, you know, of them writing all, oh. over, all over the uh, console because for punching in and, and whatnot, so I could know where to come in and come out, or if I was comping tapes or whatever. But man, I should have probably saved this. Um, but <laughs> you know, yeah, it was like. Honest, I mean, honestly, my opinion at the time was I didn't know what the hell he was. I, I hadn't heard that style of singing. I didn't know what they were doing. I didn't really get the direction. I thought it was kind of... Well, it sounds a little bit like Little Wing from Jimi Hendrix when it opens up, but... Uh... Oh, well, the whole thing seemed very classic rock to me. Yeah, like, there we go. Which was not very popular or not what I was thinking of at the time or attracted to at that moment. And I'm like, you know, I really didn't get where they were going with all this. And I mean, honestly, to be sell myself out here and be short sighted. I was like, well, you know, I'm glad the guys at least had some success with getting deal with blood bone and everything, because I don't know what this is going to do. So that's why I guess I was never an A&R guy at that time. Because, I didn't, you know, I honestly did not, um, I didn't see it doing anything. I didn't really get it. If it makes you feel better, this was an album that it took me a while to, to actually understand myself. Uh, and yeah, in the, hindsight, once it totally clicked, it was like, fuck, this is amazing. Yeah, I know. Even being so close to it, I just, you know, I didn't get, and it, but, you know, also being so close to it too, and where I was coming from, um, I was so about doing a good job engineering wise and, and um, getting good, clean, great classic sounds, not because I wanted them to have classic records, you know, <laughs> it was because of my own selfish. Uh, well, you wanted to do a good but, job and be known as the guy who did this, right? Well, I just was really trying to keep Rick off my ass and <laughs> get, good at, get good at what I was doing, you know? So that one day when I make a record or whatever, you know, that's how we were all thinking back then. You know, and that's the thing that was a that was cool about that scene is that 
all of us, everybody around there was incredibly ambitious and not in a um, undercutting way. Like if that goes back right. to what you were asking earlier about people helping each other, but everybody really had some serious goals and were serious about it where maybe in LA they were getting a little too caught up in imagery and the party and the fun, even though, you know, the drugs got known for shallow, but I tell you, right. work situations in the studio were serious. Like, my work with Allison Chains, all that. There was never like shenanigans or partying. It was all down to business when you're in the studio. Well, let me ask you this. Were you offended then when they had uh, Brendan O'Brien come in and basically um, just strip it all down and redo it? Well, I, I was curious. Well, I kind of saw it coming because what's that's two part answer for me. Like I really like Tim Palmer and what Tim Palmer did to, for the mixes. Yeah. I feel like if he went to mix that record, I don't know if it would have been as big as it would have been at that time. I think what he, how he mixed it is what made it, um, do so well at radio, uh, at that, for that particular moment in time. And, um, so in that sense, it, but, I also knew that Jeff wasn't happy with the amount of wetness, as he would say. He just felt there's too many reverbs and mm. things like that on it and too roomy. And I know Eddie felt the same way and Ed was getting more and more into like, um, you know, kind of the punk side of things and really like Fugazi and less production and things like that, which is always easy to say after you get to that point. So I kind of saw that they had that regret and saw that that's where the new albums were going to go. And I think they just always in the back of their mind wanted to see what Chen would have sounded like that way. Okay. So I wasn't too shocked or anything by them doing that. But but I think it speaks for itself. It's, you know, the record is one of the biggest records out, you know I mean? Yeah. Went on to sell 13 landmark. million copies. Yeah. And now, have you so, heard the, uh, the, the Brandon O'Brien deal? I have, and just not that long ago, really. I just wasn't really interested, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Hearing it, um, I finally heard it because I was doing a um, talk at uh, at a, a, a audio, um, you know, thing where people, what do you call it, panel type thing, workshop, and um, on the, and that record was the theme of it. 10 and they had they started playing Brendan's mix of while I was sitting there and I hadn't listened to the record in a long time in the first place but they didn't say that it was Brendan's and I was listening to it going man this sounds different to me like tripping out like I do not remember that being like that or this or that and then you know comes to find out it was Brendan on Prime's mix and I'm like oh my god I thought I was going crazy <laughs> or I thought they just sounded completely different than what I remembered or something but so I've heard it since that way do you like it? Um, I can't say I mean Brendan's amazing yeah Um, so you can't really knock it I, I'm probably too close like a, yeah, okay. you know, used to hearing it the old way you know what I mean um, so you know well, I don't know I'll, I'll tell you this um, I was never like someone who like this album needs to be remixed I was fine with it the way right. it was it's not, it's not in the first one you would think that needs a remix <laughs> yeah but when and but 
like when I first heard they did it, I was like you. I was like, I, whatever. I've been hearing this remix, remaster crap for the longest time. It ends up just being a little more bassy and a little louder. I don't care. I didn't realize this. This was actually a version where, like, basically the knobs were all dialed to zero. All the effects were taken off, and they started over. Um, when I finally did well, I, hear, I mean, like I said, I knew that Jeff and Eddie wanted that. I know Jeff yeah, yeah. had made that vocal quite a number of times. But after the record, I do, I do think it's very good. I, I like it uh, better. Um, but again, I never had a problem with it to begin with. So it's like you, you kind of, I don't know. Like I, I'm not someone who was there in the studio, though. I might be a little different if I was feeling it that way. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fair point um, for Jeff and, and Eddie to probably feel that way because, you know, being an artist myself and, and having records mixes, like, you know. And especially when you're on a label where you don't have as much say at the time or whatever, yeah. um, and it, and it probably sounded, oh they had say they were there they were there at the mixes and they liked it when they mixed it, um, but I think it just was one of those things that irked Jeff or Ed and to where they said man I just wonder what it would have been like if we would have went this way and they had power in the clouds to be able to do that I mean I'm sure there's a ton of artists who would say I wouldn't mind hearing this record redone <laughs> you know. Or what if you know? Sure. Um, well, let me uh, one. Let me ask you a little bit. Um, are there any kind of like fun or kind of laugh about it now kind of moments from recording this? Any anecdotes or stories you can share? You know, I wish there were. <laughs> well, you like, shared a couple. Like I, I thought the, I thought the story with Andrew yeah, was I great, the, and that was kind of you know a funny one. Honestly, it was. Uh, you know, there's like I said, there was no shenanigans. It was all like them working on it. You know, Mike <laughs> was always funny. Like just being around him was funny. McCree was just funny, dude. And he was the newest to it and the most excited, I think, you know, um, about the whole process and nervous. You know, he showed his nerves. He would have these, uh, um, his arsenal of beverages, we'd call it. So, like, when we'd be doing a, in the control room doing overdubs, he'd sit in the control room with his guitar, feeding out to the live room with the amps. And um, he would have, we'd put it, like a fold-up table next to him and it would have like you know like start with a coffee a coke a beer uh a freaking lemonade i don't know like (laughs) 30 different drinks on his table and you know it it just he was so uh nervous and gung-ho to do you know you know, you know, when you're making your first record like this, and you're the guy who's hired to be the lead guitar guy, and he's always one of the, you know, he, that's his dream to be Mister Guitar Hero. Um, he was, you know, wanting to put down these legendary guitar solos, so it was fun. And you know, always asking me, "Is he tones right?" Like, ah. I'm like, "Yeah, well, let's try this." And so it was fun when we got to work together. What, um, what kind of guitar head did he use? Well, it was cool because. I mean, we didn't go, there wasn't, it's kind of the way the program is, not, there's never an overabundance of like, they're not like crazy like that. They'll get like a few great classic things, meat and potato stuff. I mean, maybe Jeff with his, you know, multi-string basses there, the, <laughs> you know, basses. that was like pre-decadent for them, but look what it produced. I mean, Jeremy wouldn't have been, you know, what it was and things like that, but it was basic stuff like, uh. Remember, we were excited to get, he got a, uh, a real 59 um, Fender basement. So that was pretty cool. 
because it was a real vintage 59 Fender basement. Other than that, I think we had my Marshall head, one of his Marshall, a red Marshall head that I remember him having in the rehearsal room days of other previous bands. Um, oh, which Marshalls? Uh, JCM 800s. My nice. 800. I think his was some, yeah, 80s thing. Who's those red ones that came out? Um, and then, um, Nothing special. They are now. They were pretty stock then at that time. Oh, right, yeah. The JCM eight hundred to me is is the uh, it's it's my favorite amp. Anyway, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I still have that that same amp. Bought it in high school. Still have it. But it was on that. So we had those, and we. I think there was some like uh, Stone had gotten a uh, Supro, like a Page one that he wanted. Um, a couple other little amps. Uh, he had his Fender Twin that he always used. Uh, Stone did um, really neat, basic meat and potato stuff. Same nice. with, I mean, even less with Temple. Temple of Dog was like so fast with basics, but but a little more things. I didn't remember Stone got a brand new Gretsch. I remember that was cool. You know, little cool things, little cool gifts they got. You know, for being getting a new deal, but nothing overboard and real basic miking. Um, you know, fifty sevens, four twenty ones. Neumann maybe, you know, an 87 maybe, and just basic pedals too that we just mixed around and we just really, and you know, lots of EQ with the knees and stuff, mm-hmm. but just going for real uh, straight up good tones um, and and performance. Well, how about this? Um, when was the last time you actually sat down and listened to the record? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know because I, I don't, to be honest with you, I hardly listen to music at all because I'm always working on something. Okay. So whenever I, whenever I'm in the car somewhere, I'm like not, per- I like people make fun of me because like I'm, I have silence going like when I'm working on shit or driving. Like let's put on there. You never listen to music. I'm like, dude, I listen to music all day every day it's just, <laughs> somebody uh, believe it or not i, I know that. exactly what you're talking about uh, uh i i listen so to a lot of talk I, radio because of that uh, I, I listen just, to a lot of talk radio yeah. yeah um but i don't um i i haven't much but then again like if i do turn on the radio or something or i'm in the car with somebody or with my wife she loves this on a rock station boom there's a pearl jam song so it's like <laughs> You know, I hear one and it's cool. And actually I enjoy that because it kind of makes, you know, I get a tinge of, oh man, you know, fucking worked on that one. (laughs) You know, so it's kind of nice when I just hear it like there out in the, uh, in the, in the open. (laughs) From a sales standpoint, would that be the biggest record you you did? Yeah. 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 It's it's the only diamond award I have, but, um, (laughs) you know, the Alice stuff and, uh, some other things came close. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, nothing. Yeah. I mean, that's that, you know, hitting 10 million plus is pretty tough for anybody. Mm. What about, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of cool artists. So what about, do you have any favorite tracks in this? I always like, well, I always like black and, um, uh, porch was cool. I remember black being stand out for me from the beginning, uh, working on it. I remember, I remember, I, once again, with the lyric sheets, I remember looking at the lyrics going, oh, that's, well, you know, it, 
and I always do this at least because I thought they weren't going to do well. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, he's a good lyricist. At least they got that. I'd always like kind of make excuses for them, which is hilarious seeing how good and successful they are. But um, <laughs> at the time, I was like, yeah, um, I think that one kind of always kind of stood out. Yeah, I have a hard time because I think it's 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 almost a perfect record. Um, but Black is definitely a, a, one of the ones I would go back to. I, the ones that I don't Wash probably, I thought was good too. Which I one? Just remember that Wash. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I love Release Me. Release me, uh, good too. Yeah, so. uh, and yeah, but uh, was there any like jokes about like we need to have at least one song with more than one word for a title? No, I, I do remember that. I, I kept thinking, I, I'll tell you, I kept thinking those were work titles. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking those were working titles because, yeah, everything was one word. I totally remember that. Um, well, I think Why yeah. Go is the only two, two words. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I think if there were jokes, it was like me making jokes. <laughs> um, They're like, but, what uh, a dick, yeah. <laughs> but I, um, yeah, I, that's funny i i really always thought oh those must be work <laughs> which would have made sense right you know no, of I, course you know, right? yeah yeah you just kind of do things easy and then you like when it come time comes down to it, you actually you know elaborate a little more but uh right well but, uh, rick died i think tragically young of course i think most people would say that in 2014 at the age of 50 um any memories of him you'd like to share you know anything related to this time or just in general uh, Rick, he, he's one of a kind for sure. He had, you know, uh, unique personality, especially amongst rock musicians. Uh, he, you know, he's classically trained and, and all that. So he wasn't like, and he wasn't out to ever make anybody really like him necessarily. Like with mm. fans, like he, he would say, you know, his job is to, make a great record for you. That's I'm not here to be your friend kind of thing. And I remember him and Stone, I, I would we would drive Stone home sometimes to the studio. Oh, the talks they would get into and Stone would be like, just act like you like me. Kind <laughs> <And laughs> of half sarcastically, but kind of true. And of course they did, but it was like Rick was very you know, he had you know he's East Indian and he had this way about him and um and he didn't really change for anybody on that, but he was so meticulous and such a, uh, you know, perfectionist and, uh, you know, with that, you know, incredibly talented musician. Um, I mean, a lot, all those bands that worked with him, if it wasn't, you know, with his ability to play in those piano parts and showing and like really teaching everybody from Lane and Jerry to, to Eddie and how to, um, really deliver their vocals and and do harmonies and he'd write with them on the harmonies and the piano which a lot of people forget and don't know mm. all those great harmonies those all came from rick do, 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 do. yeah all that stuff was rick and them sitting at the piano working those things out he wouldn't let anything you know get by like his he was going to make sure that song was the best that song could be Hmm. So that, you know, he's, he was impressive to work with. And I, like I said, I take, I mean, I pull out of his toolbox all the time when I work. Nice. Um, yeah. Well, uh, here's your chance to plug anything. What do you, what do you got going on? Uh, do you, do you want to talk about any projects you're working on? 
Um, yeah, I just, I've been, um, I'm out in Pittsburgh now. Um, uh, and, uh, I work on two studios out here. Um, one called the vault, which has a, a classic Neve console and which I was excited about to find out here. And I actually have the, uh, two inch machine tape machine i speak of and all these stories that we did pearl jam 10 on and mm. temple of dog and alpha chain and all those bands from london bridge um after rick passed so you still record think, analog well i do as much as i can okay um i get into of course everything ends up in pro tools right but, well but yeah so i was able to, i was able to get the machine um after when i moved out here they were so the studio stuff, uh, I was talking with Rick's brother, Raj, and he was, um, you know, asked what's going on with the machine. And, and you know, so I don't know. And I go, man, would you, you know, is there a way I could, would you sell it? And then they ended up letting, uh, talking to his family and saying they'd like me to have it hmm. if I can uh, transport it. So I took it back out here and have it at the studio called The Vault and refurbished it. So that's an exciting thing, and people who come are pretty excited to get to work on that just for the history alone. Yeah, not to mention the sound. So it's been kind of cool to keep a little bit of the history alive there. And then um, another studio out of here, Tonic, and I just built my own um, mix room, uh, mixing an overdub room. So I've been rolling again and kind of having a nice, uh, nice career out here, um, working a little bit out of Nashville as well. Did a project called Ghost Hounds um, with engineer Vance Powell, who's pretty uh, famous engineer producer. Uh, works with Jack White all the time. Hmm. Um, just did a new band called Bitter Coast. I think it's going to do really well. Um, kind of based out of New York, and just doing my same thing. Just uh, you know, just keep recording, doing, finding new bands. Did a record of my own actually, um, Ooh, really? but that's surprisingly. Um, for most people, it's, uh, it's on the electronic side of things, lots of samplers and things like that. <laughs> it's not thrash. But I do because it's not thrash, and there's not even a guitar on it. But it's uh, the type of stuff I could do to uh, to make doing rock music still interesting. You know, I like to do other things as well. So um, yeah, just keeping busy in music and just grateful that I can you know just keep doing it. And, uh, yeah, no Mace reunion on the on the horizon. Funny you should ask. I almost forgot. Um, that is actually being reissued, uh, <laughs> but uh, from a Chinese label picked nice. up. And just did a reissue of those, which was pretty funny to them having me um, hunt for old um, photos <laughs> of different things uh, that they wanted for, like you know, doing like a, a booklet for it and all that. So that was interesting. But yeah. Glad you asked me. I almost forgot. Right on, Dave. This was this was a lot of fun. Uh, you were amazing. Uh, thank you so much for being part of this, man. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, have a good night, Dave. All right, it's nice talking to you.
And um, what's the tagline for you? It's uh, just uh, you're listening to whatever, never mind. Whatever, never mind. Okay. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.